Welcome to On The Money, where you can find out anything and everything to do with finance, business and the economy. On The Money is broadcast live from the studios of Radio 2 SER, nationwide on the Community Radio Network. I'm Roderick Chambers and coming up on the program... If you see somebody who perhaps needs some help, then you've got some resources to be able to do that confidently. Small business owners can be under immense stress. And in the wake of RU OK Day, Beyond Blue has released some resources to help them shore up their mental health. Also on the show... It's insensitive, it doesn't work, it's indiscriminate. There are something like 200 to 500,000 Australians a year that cannot find rehabilitation. The push is on for more cashless credit cards and Shadow Minister Linda Burney does not support their rollout. In fact, some people say the government is using the furor to distract against the continuing saga of the stagnant New Start allowance. All this and more coming up on On The Money. First, Nicole Haddow, journalist and author of Smashed Advocado, How I Cracked the Property Market and You Can Too, is speaking here with Veronica Alashina about millennial home ownership in this week's instalment of Hot Off the Press. Hello and welcome to Hot Off the Press, the segment where we bring you the latest and greatest in events, literature and new media in the world of finance, business and economics. Today I have Nicole Haddo joining me in the studio. And Nicole is a journalist and author, having just penned her first book, Smashed Avocado, How I Cracked the Property Market and You Can Too. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you very much. So your passion is encouraging young people, um, millennials, to get into the property market. What led you to embark on this journey personally? Well, it was a combination of things. Um, First, my own experience building that knowledge along the path of going from $11,000 worth of credit card debt to buying a house and realising that there were things that I should have known and wished I'd known uh, and wanting to impart that knowledge. But also in my first year of home ownership, I was struggling to make ends meet and I was writing the executive property column for the Financial Review and I was learning a lot about the property market and I was really frustrated because in, in the media, the top end of the market is disproportionately serviced. There's a lot of favourable material for people in those kind of upper echelons, whereas young people are getting the doom and gloom messages that it's not possible. And I wanted them to know that it is. That's a message of hope that I think a lot of people need to hear. I think that's what people need to hear. You know, it's not easy to buy a home. It's a huge investment and is going to be difficult. Um, But it is worth it if you're prepared to um, go through what I call the shit bit. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So... That leads me on to kind of like a more existential question. Um, What led you, what makes you want to invest in property? So that's a really interesting question because I think a lot of people in our generation say, do you know what, I'm happy renting and I like traveling and I like brunch um, and and that's cool. But 
when I got to 30 and I realised I had nothing behind me, I started to think about my long-term career prospects, uh, how I was potentially going to fund my retirement. Um, I've seen uh, older people in my life closer to me getting to retirement age without as much as they should have. Um, And that's pretty terrifying. And, And I know it's really long term, but you really need to think about what you want your life to look like when you're 65 or or 70. If you want to spend the next couple of decades traveling, that's okay. But do think realistically about what life will look like if you are renting when you're 75 with you, if your landlord just pulls the rug out from you and you've got to be packing boxes and um, it's really stressful. Any way you can secure your financial future earlier rather than later, you're probably going to be better off. Absolutely. Uh, You talked about rent vesting as well. Can we do a little uh, crash course? Sure. So rent vesting, uh, the idea of rent vesting is that essentially you purchase a property um, where you can afford uh, and you rent where you want to live. So in my case, I bought an apartment um, quite a way out of the city um, that uh, for me was what was affordable at that time. Um, The aim for me with rent vesting is to hopefully see that property go up in value uh, over time and use that equity to buy something better down the track. Um, the, the upside of rent vesting is you can do your research and buy in, in what I would call a high growth area. So an area that hasn't already gone through the roof um, and hopefully see that, that capital growth that allows you to take that next step. I read an article many, many years ago uh, that kind of goes through the cycle of gentrification and how first it's the young people who will move in, or first it's the students and then the young people and the services start to follow and then the area slowly starts to gentrify. So that's what you're looking out for when you're looking for new properties. Absolutely. I remember I remember someone saying to me um, once, you want to get into a suburb where there's not a cool cafe yet. Um, and when I bought in my suburb, there were no cool cafes. And then about 18 months later, there was a cool cafe. And I was like, oh, I've done it. I've, I've bought in the right suburb. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but you talk also in the book about this phenomenon of people wanting to move back uh, where they grew up. So the, there's this tension there between what you kind of have to do to get yourself on the property ladder and the the things that you actually kind of deep down want to achieve, like um, being closer to your communities, being close to what is familiar. So how do you deal with that? Absolutely. So um, I think I, I talk a lot about doing what you value in the book. There was a time um, in my uh I hate to use the word journey, but I'm using the word journey, uh, that I um, really gave up a lot of what I valued um, for home ownership. And I encourage people where possible not to do that. Uh, so the people who I spoke to who moved regionally, they really wanted to do that and that suited their lifestyles and work-wise they were able to do that. But yes, there is a, there is a massive problem, uh, particularly for people in our age group who are settling down and having children. Um, they do need the support of their, their parents and their family. Um, they don't want to live two hours away. So for, for people um, that, that require that, there is a huge problem because they potentially can't afford to buy uh, in the area where they grew up. And speaking of this kind of intergenerational link, you confronted uh, Bernard Salt. So this is, uh, for anyone who is unaware, um, this is the man who wrote the article where he talked about millennials uh, spending too much on smashed avocado 
Yeah, so he's probably not going to be too impressed with some of the things <laughs> I put in the book, unfortunately. <laughs> Sorry, Bernard. Um, I tried to get hold of him quite a few times and he eventually answered some questions via email. Um, look, to his credit, he does make a good point. I think there is there are people um, in our generation who probably are spending um, more than they should on, on brunch and travel and clothes and, and winding up with nothing. But there's also a huge part of our generation who are genuinely locked out of the market. I think, to his credit, he was probably just having a bit of a dig and, and certainly not intending to to go uh, viral Completely or make, viral. make international yeah. headlines <laughs> still be talked about um, years later. But, you know, I did say to him, what would you do if you were in our generation, you know? And he sort of said, oh, well, I'd... Uh, I'd be saving, but I'd also make sure I was living. Um, and also, it's okay because property prices are coming down. And I thought, <laughs> mate, come on. Yes, property prices did did drop slightly. Um, there was a you know a, a fall in in Sydney uh, and Melbourne in particular in in the past twelve to eighteen months, but. In the grand scheme of things, in the past 20 years, that fall has made very little impact for anyone trying to buy a home. Median house price in Sydney is still hovering around a million dollars. That is, you know, 10 times the average salary, whereas when he was buying a house, property prices were four times the annual salary. Um, It's prohibitive for a lot of people. so I think a lot of a lot of baby boomers, as much as they try to think they understand, they just really don't. I had to go to essentially the bottom of the market to get in. But when I bought, that was five years ago, and I'm now starting to get to a point where there is equity in that investment. I can potentially take my next step. So it's it's about getting in, building equity, and and seeing where you can go from there. Okay, so another crash course for any of our listeners who don't know uh, about the process of building equity. Uh, What does that look like? So say, and I'm just going to give you some random numbers here, Um, say I buy a $250,000 house, Um, wouldn't that be amazing, (laughs) with a $50,000 deposit, that means I owe $200,000. But because my house is worth two fifty, I've got fifty thousand dollars in equity. Now, if in the next five six years that property value rises to half a million, let's just say my loan is still two hundred thousand dollars, which wouldn't be the case, but my property is worth five hundred thousand dollars. That means I've got three hundred thousand dollars worth of equity. So simply by having the value of the property go up, you can take your next step. Nicole Haddow, journalist, millennial homeowner and author of Smashed Avocado, How I Cracked the Property Market and You Can Too, for Hot Off the Press with Veronica Alashina. I'm Roderick Chambers and you're listening to On The Money throughout Australia on the Community Radio Network. This month, Beyond Blue released an online guide providing guidance on helping small business owners deal with mental health challenges in the workplace. While the impact of mental health on employees in businesses has been measured, there is growing concern about the impact of poor mental health in small business. Daniel Ellison spoke with a consultant and small business coach, Leanne Faulkner, and began by asking how bad small business can be affected by poor mental health. Yeah, I I can't really put a dollar figure on it immediately, but what I can tell you is that the problem is probably well exacerbated in the small business community because... 98% of all businesses in Australia are small and of those, uh, 64% in fact have no employees 
at all. We're sole operators and quite often we may not be able to afford to take time off. We certainly don't get sick pay and we don't get holiday pay because we're self-employed. So um, what we do have is an epidemic in small business called presenteeism which is where we have small business owners who are at work probably nowhere near as productive as they could be because they're not well, but feel that they simply can't afford to not be at work. And that's where we really need to start seeking out some solutions so that we can support people to make the time uh, and afford to be able to invest in their own general well-being because that investment is the return um, that they'll get um, in in having a, a thriving small business. Leanne, can you please tell our listeners what you've been doing to aid with mental health in small business in Australia? So Fortitude at Work is the name of my consultancy and I guess uh, what I've been very active in over the last seven years particularly, is advocating for the mental health of small business owners. So that's meant being involved in a range of projects from trying to influence social policy and, you know, just decisions that are made regarding working with small businesses at a government uh, level to uh, working with small business owners at a local level um, and everything in between. So am I correct in saying that the resources released last week are not the first created to assist with mental health in small business? Is that right? Yeah, um, that was actually part of the, or that is part of the Heads Up program, which has been available via the Beyond Blue website or headsup.org.au for a number of years now, which has been fantastic. And that was an initiative of a group that has been working together for some time called the Mentally Healthy Workplace Alliance. And what that is, is a number of uh, national providers, support agencies like Beyond Blue and Sane, Superfriend, getting together with industry users. And that would be COSBOA, the Council of Small Business Organisations Australia, who I represent with the, on the alliance, ACI, the Chamber of Commerce and Industry, the ACTU, getting together with all of us and trying to come up with some resources that um, all businesses big and small can use. So Leanne, is there something different about these particular resources compared to those that have come before them? What was really exciting about last week's uh, launch was that it was specifically resources for, um, I guess, I uh, might call them intermediaries. <laughs> um, these are the people who may uh, have quite a lot of contact with the small business community and they may in fact be the first people to see a small business owner who might be under a great deal of stress, distress or anxiety and be able to refer them to appropriate resources. So I guess really it's about that first point of contact where if you see somebody who perhaps needs some help, um, then you've got some resources to be able to do that confidently. So it sounds like a number of different people could be the intermediary who could make a difference to a small business owner. Yes. What kind yes. of... Can you sort of like because people might be listening right now and they they may be intermediaries without even knowing it. What what kind of people mm. are, te are 
are, are typically intermediaries? Yeah, great point. Uh, that would be, say, an accountant or a bookkeeper, might be your bank manager who, you know, you, you might see every now and again if you're applying for an overdraft or doing a review on where you're at or wanting to get funding for a piece of equipment or something like that. So it could well be uh, your bank manager. Uh, it might be a business coach. So a lot of small business owners uh, have business coaches to help them grow their business. So it might be a business coach. So I guess really anyone who might typically be a contact person in that small business environment and um, may witness when somebody, when that business owner needs a bit of support. And and the resource is fantastic because it um, allows you or gives you some some skills on how to identify that and then then how to refer that person to the appropriate help without you having to be, you know, a counsellor or a a psychologist. You you don't have to do that. You just have to be comfortable referring somebody, keeping them safe. That sounds like a very good thing to be be doing. And, you know, we we don't want to sort of spoil it for people. What what are some of the general signs that that you might see in a small business owner that you know that, that might start triggering some alarm bells? Yeah, that's a really good question, um, and it, it really is about that. It's a, about observing changes in behaviour, changes in attitude. You might have somebody who is a lot more snappy, argumentative, uh, angry than they typically are. They may be somebody who has who's not turning up to work regularly like they would would normally be doing. They may be isolating themselves at work, whereas you might have someone who, you know, really enjoys coming to morning tea or sitting in the staff room with their team for lunch and suddenly you don't see them anymore. Um, because they're just sitting in their office or not coming to work. They're typical signs. Um, you might have somebody who's not, um, who's, you know, sleep deprived or perhaps isn't caring for their appearance as they would normally. Any changes from regular behaviour or not participating, anything that's that's consistently different, I'd say would be a red flag and just worth you know, inquiring, are you okay? What's going on for you? Absolutely. And it's especially important to have this conversation around National Are You Okay Day. Correct. Yes, that's exactly right. And and, and brilliant to see so much attention brought to this fantastic initiative where you don't, you know, you, you don't have to be a doctor, you don't have to be a psychologist, you don't have to be a counsellor to just check in with somebody. And sometimes I hear people, you know, they'll say to me, oh, I don't want to ask because I don't want to offend anyone that, you know, I'm, I'm making a bigger deal than, than not. But my counter to that is, you know, inquiring about somebody's health, their mental health, their physical health is never offensive. What it actually is, it demonstrates that you're somebody who cares. And even if, you know, you've got it wrong and they just happen to be, you know, they stayed up all night and watched every episode of Game of Thrones or something, and that's why they're not themselves, at least they know that you're somebody who cares and somebody who's not afraid to have a conversation about supporting one another at work and down the track they may need that ear. So it's, it's, you can never go wrong by just asking, you know, are you okay? Leanne Faulkner there of Fortitude at Work speaking with Daniel Ellison.
The Morrison government is on track to suggest a nationwide rollout of cashless welfare cards. This comes after what the government deems to be successful card trials in Queensland, New South Wales and Western Australia. There are also calls to introduce drug testing for welfare recipients to help struggling Australians. But the Australia Council of Social Service says it's all a distraction so that the government can ignore calls to raise Newstart. Michaela Savage has more. The government's plans for a national rollout of cashless welfare cards, which largely prevent welfare recipients from spending their money on drugs, alcohol and gambling, has the tick of approval from Senator Jackie Lambie. It's amazing. It's not going to fix everything, but I certainly think it's got so much potential. And if people just give it a go and see what it's like for criticising something because it thinks it's taking their rights. But the proposed drug testing of welfare recipients is a step too far, according to Senator Lambie, who says she'll only back the idea if drug testing of politicians is also introduced. I think they should just do the right thing and lead by example and do it to themselves. That's what I think. Um, and yeah, probably they're probably avoiding um, the cameras. But we ran through this about three or four years ago when they were, they were out there saying, yeah, well, I don't mind, I don't mind. So if nobody minds and nobody's making a hoo-ha out of it, then let's get it implemented. What's wrong with them? Linda Burney, member for Barton and Shadow Opposition Minister for Families and Social Services, says she's not concerned with Senator Lambie's suggestion. My issue is with the issue of welfare recipients being uh, subject to random drug tests. There are one in four Australians on Newstart who are over the age of 55. We think it's, uh, it's an insult to those people that they should be required to undergo a, a drug test. I mean, the other thing, of course, is that it is expensive. It's been tried in two or three overseas jurisdictions and has found to be a failure. She maintains that Labor does not support the cashless card system or the drug testing of welfare recipients. It's insensitive. It doesn't work. It's indiscriminate. There are something like 200 to 500,000 Australians a year that have issues with substance abuse that cannot find uh, rehabilitation. Paz Forgione, campaign director at the Australian Council of Social Service, or ACOS, is totally opposed to the suggestion of welfare cards or any drug testing. Totally opposed. Totally opposed. I and mean, this is a this is a, a policy that that has um, failed over and over again um, to improve the lives of people directly affected by the card. The evaluations of the um, of the program have not shown that there are clear uh, benefits for um, for people um, placed on the card. He says that the government's evidence that the card scheme works is flimsy at best and that some of the evaluations of the cashless scheme haven't even been completed. We would dispute the government's claims that that um, under this policy is actually working and, uh, and in fact the latest evaluations of the um, cashless debit card um, like haven't actually even been completed yet. The evidence is actually very weak, largely the government's evaluations um, largely rely on like anecdotal evidence, and there is not clear evidence that that people's lives have improved. That that um, under levels of alcohol and tobacco consumption have gone down. He also says that the timing of the calls to roll out the scheme nationally conveniently coincide with calls for New Start to be increased. The timing of the government's announcements around cashless welfare and drug testing make it pretty clear that this is a distraction. We know that there's growing community support for raising the rate of new start, 
from business groups, from regional groups like the Country Women's Association, from charities and unions, and, and even from a handful of government backbenchers. So we see this pretty clearly as, as an attempt by the government to deflect from the pressure on them to act on the raise of the New Start. Basically, the government um, pushing this um, scheme is a pretty blatant attempt um, to distract from the growing um, pressure on them to act on the low rate of New Start and Youth Allowance. We know that they're under pressure on this issue, that um, government politicians have come out over the past um, few months and have called for New Start to be raised and there's significant and widespread community support. And so we see the government's um, um, push on cash and welfare and drug testing as an attempt to distract and deflect from those real issues. ACOS believe that there are better ways for the government to spend money helping Australians with drug addictions. Far more effective for the government um, to put the money directly into investing in services and programs that work with those people and support them instead of another punishing the top-down scheme that further shames people who are like already experiencing significant stress um, in their lives. So this is not a program that works. Um, and our view is if we want a society where, like anyone, can be drug tested willy-nilly, and certainly uh, I think that's not how we deal with drug addiction and drug misuse. I think the answer is not um, breathalyzers and urine samples. I think the answer is is to have services and programs that are well-funded and um, that are available for people who need help. Ultimately, when the government officially introduces this national card scheme, it will be met with ample opposition. Michaela Savage there with that report. You're listening to On The Money around Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Roderick Chambers. That's all we have time for on On The Money this week. Tune in again next week to find out everything you need to know about finance, business and the economy. Thanks to our producers, Daniel Ellison and Michaela Savage. On The Money is produced in the studios of Radio 2 SER-FM for the Community Radio Network. You can find all of our shows and stories at 2ser.com slash on the money. Subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes. New episodes are coming out every week. Follow us on Twitter and find us on Facebook and Instagram for updates. I'm Roderick Chambers. We'll be back again next week to give you the inside running on all things financial. Thanks for your company.